Numbers chapter 15, and let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the joy you've put in our hearts. And Lord, we aren't trying anymore to impress people or to um, come across as anything other than what you've made us. Lord, we have a joy in our heart. We have a love in our lives. And Lord, we know that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. And in the meantime, we're trying to count for you and trying to influence others for Jesus' sake. Lord, tonight I pray that you'll encourage us. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. So I pray tonight, Lord, as we study your scripture, that you'll build up our faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Once there was a painter who worked for a very demanding, even a pushy boss. On one job, the boss was pushing the painter to hurry up with his work. And the painter wanted to do so, but he knew that he was under such pressure that an accident was bound to happen. We'll explain this to the boss, but the boss was unimpressed. This deadline had to be met. Well, just as the painter predicted, though, a wet brush did slide out of his hand, and it fell 40 feet. And as the painter leaned over the edge, once the brush had slipped, once he leaned over the edge of the scaffolding, he saw that this brush was headed right for the head of his pushy boss. And so he shouted out, Quack, quack, gobble, gobble. Quack, quack, gobble, gobble. And just about that time, the brush smacked the boss right on the noggin. Paint went everywhere. Later, this boss found the painter after he cleaned up and all, and he said, Hey, when you dropped that brush, why didn't you warn me? And that's when the painter looked at him and he said, Sir, I did warn you. Didn't you hear me shout, Duck, turkey? <laughs> quack, quack, gobble, gobble, duck, turkey. I suppose you could say that's a pretty lame duck, wouldn't you say? Of course, a lame duck is a bird that's been shot, but still somehow manages to fly. Or a politician who's been re-elected but serves out his term. Both remain in the air, but it won't be long before they're grounded. Thus the term lame duck. Hey, the adult Hebrews who left Egypt became the lame duck generation. After God's miraculous efforts to win their freedom, He brought them to Mount Sinai. And there this band of slaves were equipped to become a great nation. God gave Israel His law. He established leadership and organization. We've been talking about this. He taught the Hebrews how to worship Him. After 13 months, they were ready to enter the promised land. But in chapters 13 and 14, as we saw last time, they balked. They caved into unbelief. God proved His faithfulness to them over and over again in unmistakable ways. But rather than put their faith in the Lord, Israel acted like a gobble, gobble, like a turkey. They failed to enter the land of bounty. And as a result, God told Moses that the children of these, this generation would enter the land, but not the adults. The generation of Hebrews that had ex exited Egypt would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they were dead and gone. Only their children would enter the land. Tonight, we're going to look at the final term of the lame duck generation. 
They're still flying, but one by one, they're dying. Chapter 15 continues the story. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you. Now, notice the hopeful wording that God uses. They've just forfeited the opportunity to enter the land. It will be some decades of years before they actually get this opportunity. But notice he doesn't say, if you come into the land. He still says, when you come into the land, you are to inhabit. In other words, God hasn't given up. Yes, Israel has failed, but God hasn't given up. The nation will enter Canaan. Israel suffered a setback, but God has not taken back His promise. God's life is full of setbacks. Some are caused by situations we can't control. Others are caused by our own willfulness or unbelief. But despite it all, God remains faithful to His people and to His promises. God never throws in the towel. Aren't you glad? Yes, at times He disciplines us. He spanks us. Just like he does Israel here, but in God's grace, there is a new day, another chance every single day. Hey, it's never if you'll make it. It's always when you make it. This is why you should never allow a setback to cause you to look back. Keep pressing forward. Learn from your mistake. Focus ahead. A setback is just a setup for a new miracle in God's plan. Well, God tells this younger generation of Hebrews who will enter the land and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. Now Moses goes on to explain here that when you sacrifice a ram, in these next few verses he says that you need to bulk up the offerings. You need to double the flour. You need to add more oil. You need to use a third of a hind or a hen of wine rather than a fourth. It takes more grain and more wine to permeate the meat and to add to its aroma. And when you offer a bull, you need to really beef up the offering. You need to triple the flour. You need to double the oil and wine. And this applies to all the Israelites, stranger and Israelite alike. Verse 15 says that there is one ordinance for Jew and Gentile together. But here's what I hope you notice from these verses. Notice the combination of the grain and the wine, the bread, and the wine. Notice, we are less than four books into the Bible, and we have seen over and over the combination of the bread and the wine. The two elements that we celebrate in communion, the grain and the wine. You remember back in, Hebrew, in Genesis chapter 14, the high priest, priest Melchizedek met Abraham with what? With bread and with wine. Joseph encountered while in prison. You remember? A baker who does what? Who makes bread. And a cupbearer who drinks wine. The Hebrews celebrated Passover again by eating bread and drinking wine. And now again we see the bread and the wine in the grain offering and in the drink offering. 
throughout the Bible, the grain and the wine always work together to speak of Jesus Christ. In the Mosaic Law, the grain offering and the drink offering were supplemental sacrifices. You might call them aflac sacrifices. Supplemental. They were placed on top of the animal that was being offered on the altar. According to verse 10, they added aroma to the sacrifice. Rather than just burning the beef, you put a little wine on it, put a little grain on top of it, bread it, juice it up with some steak sauce, and it gave off a better aroma. And I think here is the picture for you and me, the application for us. In the New Testament, who are the sacrifices? We are, aren't we? You remember Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what we're told? Present your bodies to God, a living sacrifice. But you see, the Christian life is not just about giving up and turning over and being a sacrifice. No, what makes following God such a joy, what brings us such intense joy and such labors of love, is that while we remain on the altar as a sacrifice, in the midst of that, we experience this sweet aroma, this sweet intimacy and communion with Jesus Christ. You see, it's fellowship with Jesus that is the aroma. It's the supplemental. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice, do as we please, but then the Lord meets us, and He comforts us, and He blesses us, and He fills our hearts with joy. It's the grain offering, it's the Drink offering that tenderizes us and keeps life sweet to the taste. So be a living sacrifice, but pour a little wine, pour a little joy, pour a little love on that sacrifice. Experience the Lord in communion with Him. Verse 17 tells us, Again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, notice, when you come, Then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. Again, God sees not what is, but what will be when you come into the land. Reminds me of Mike Westhoff, special teams coach for the Miami Dolphins. When Mike was in the hospital dying of cancer, he received a visit from his boss, Don Shula, the Miami Dolphins head coach. And everyone who had visited Mike had said their goodbyes. But when Don Shula walked in, he leaned over Mike's bed and he whispered, Listen, Mike, I need you in training camp come July on the field ready to go. We're going all the way next year. Mike recovered from his cancer, by the way. And he was back at work in July. And later he recalled the conversation he had with his boss. He said, I thought Coach Shula would tuck me in. But he didn't. He treated me the way I could be, not the way I was. And this is what God is doing for the nation in these verses. Yes, they have endured a huge failure. They got right to the brink of the promised land and balked. They failed. They buckled under to unbelief. But God is not looking at them as they are. He's looking at them in the way that He wants them to be. The way that they can be through Him. He's instilling faith in their defeated hearts. God, too, wants them to go all the way. He's not tucking them in. He's encouraging them to press on. And this is why he keeps keeps saying, When you come into the land, verse 20, You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering. And you remember what you did with a heave offering? Anybody? You heaved it. Remember what you did with a wave offering? 
Well, you guys are smart. You're quick. Yeah, heave a heave offering. You wave a wave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so you offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. When they do enter the land, God wants them to make sure that they honor Him with the first of their harvest. He says it is a heave offering. This is what we do when we give a tithe or a tenth of our income to the Lord. And let me admit to you, when you first start to tithe, it is like a heave offering. Did you know that your check, that little slip of paper, weighs just four one-hundredths of an ounce? One-twenty-fifth of an ounce. That's all your check weighs. Did you know that? Just one-twenty-fifth of an ounce. But try to drop that in the offering box some weeks. And it feels so heavy that you're having to heave it into that offering box. And it's not because of the weight of the check. It's not because of the weight of the paper. It's not because of the weakness of your arm. The problem is our puny faith. And yet, faith is like a muscle. And the more you work a muscle, what happens to it? Stronger it gets. And the more you work your faith, what happens to your faith? It gets stronger. And before long, you're able to pick up that big heavy check and just slip it right in the offering box, trusting God to meet your needs as you honor Him with your income. Trust God with your money. Even if your check gets heavy, heave it on in and you'll see God prove His faithfulness and you'll see your faith get stronger so that it will become easier and easier to obey. Well, verse 22 tells us, If you sin unintentionally, and here God is going to differentiate between deliberate and unintentional sins. And do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses, from the day of the Lord God, the day the Lord gave the commandment onward throughout your generations, then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is in case the whole congregation sins unintentionally. Then they are to offer the burnt offering that God requires and He will forgive them. As verse 25 says, for their unintended sin. Verse 27 deals with the individual who sins unintentionally. If a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. And verse 29 tells us this applies to the Hebrew and the stranger alike. Notice whether the perpetrator knows it's a sin or not. It is still a sin in God's eyes. You can't say, well, I didn't know. I'm not responsible. I didn't know. No, even if you didn't know, if it's a sin, it's still a sin. And you are responsible to God. It requires the blood of a sacrifice to be forgiven. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. They didn't know what they were doing, but it was still a sin. Obviously, Jesus became the sacrifice for even unintentional sins. But verse 30 tells us, But the person who does anything presumptuously, the word literally means 
high-handed, deliberately. The idea is deliberately betraying the Lord. He says, whether he is a native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. You forgive an unintentional sin, but for acts of defiance, for deliberate disobedience, the solution is not forgiveness, it is punishment. A lesson has to be learned. Discipline has to be administered. Every parent understands this concept. When a kid slips up and makes an honest mistake, we're quick to forgive. No problem. But when a child commits treason... When they deliberately defy your word, if you don't discipline them, you will never gain their respect. Here's a successful parenting strategy. Forgive childish blunders, but discipline defiant attitudes. This was God's strategy with Israel. This is what I'm facing when I get home tonight. And God provides an example of this principle right here in verse 32. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Now, it hadn't been explained what his punishment should be, but he knew he was sinning. I mean, they just laid out, God has just laid out all these laws concerning the Sabbath day. And this guy just completely ignores them. And he goes out and he's collecting firewood on the Sabbath day. Deliberate rebellion. The man's placed in solitary confinement until they can consult with God and discern his will. What should be done? Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses and all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Giving new meaning to the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones. In this this case, gathering sticks and stones did break the poor guy's bones. Remember the old covenant did not have the power to transform the sinful nature of man. Thus, some of these punishments that we might consider to be harsh punishments. You see, the law exposed sin, but it couldn't change the sinner. A person who was habitually rebellious would only grow worse and worse and more defiant. Thus, to protect the society God had instituted, swift and stiff penalties were applied. Thankfully, under the new covenant, the blood of Jesus covers all our sins. Unintentional and intentional. The subtle and even the high-handed sins. Aren't you glad? The blood of Jesus is far more potent than the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus forgives us of our sin. And then he goes one step further. He transforms the heart of the sinner. He turns callous hearts into compliant hearts. Jesus offers hope for the addict. He, He offers change for the hardcore rebel. And we've all been there. We're all so thankful. Verse 37, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. God gives them a little reminder here to be obedient. 
because if they needed one after they just stoned this guy. But they're to wear these tassels with the blue thread. Remember, the ark was transported under a blue cloth. The robes of the high priest had a blue hue to them. Blue was the color of the curtains in the tabernacle. Blue spoke of heaven. He says, and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which you, your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. The tassels reminded the people of God's commandments. Obey God, remember the tassel and your life won't be such a hassle. You know, even today, Jewish men wear these tassel reminders on their clothing. The Hebrew name for tassel is actually zitzit, which means to twinkle or to glance. It twinkled, it stood out. It was a reminder to the people. God says in verse 39, you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it. It should catch your eye. It should remind you. This was why the Jews were forbidden to tuck the tassels into their pants. It was supposed to be external so it could be seen. And it's fitting that the tassel had a blue thread. For God's commandments are not man's invention. They're not just another option. They come from heaven. They come from God. Recently I was asked to do a, a wedding between a believer and an unbeliever. And I said, no, I can't do that. The Bible expressly says that a believer is not supposed to marry an unbeliever. I would be wrong in officiating that wedding. And the person got mad at me. As if I was making this up. As if this was my rule. I said, hey, I'm following a script. I'm not writing this. These are God's laws. These are God's rules, not mine. That's why the tassel had that blue thread. These commandments come from heaven, not from earth. These are not negotiable. Verse 41 sums up the chapter. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Chapter 16. Now Korah the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth. This boy was probably hyperactive. He was always on. Sons of Reuben took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown, bigwigs. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron. On the heels of their failure to enter the land of Canaan, they looked for a scapegoat. They blamed their plight on Moses and Aaron. They'd rather than take responsibility for their own sin, they find someone else to blame. You know, it's always amazing to me at the turnover among Major League Baseball managers. At the end of every season, half the teams fire their managers. And guess what? The other teams rehire the same guys that the other teams had fired. And in other words, the teams just all swap managers. And why? The manager never walked to the plate. The manager never swung a bat. He didn't field a ball. He didn't throw to first base. He didn't make an error. But you see, it's easier to fire the manager than it is to replace 25 players. It's just a simpler solution to blame a team's troubles on the skipper. And this is what happened to the Hebrews. 
The people failed to enter the land. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You could say they had a losing season and now they try to fire their manager. You know, I see this happen in the church all the time. People fall short of their calling. And rather than take response and believe, they blame it on their leaders. Oh, if, if my pastor had just been this, or if my pastor had done that, or if the church had had a different emphasis. Hey, you can't lead people who don't want to be led. The leaders of this uprising, they say to Moses and Aaron, You take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Who do you think you are, Moses, to be leading us? You can see that little twerpy Edward G. Robinson saying that in the movie, you know. Rising up and confronting Moses. You know what I'm talking about? The Ten Commandments? Remember little Edward G. The little twerpy guy? The little guy you want to just punch? You have to screen every time you see him, you know? Who are you, Moses? Maybe you don't remember him. I don't know. (laughs) Well, the answer, who are you, Moses? Moses was the man God called. God himself had called and ordained Moses and Aaron to their leadership positions. And you remember, originally Moses didn't want the job. God had to help him overcome his excuses. There was no doubt that Moses and Aaron had been commissioned by God. And since God called them, God was the one who would remove them. Not Korah, not any of his cronies. And this is how Moses resolves the dispute. Hey guys, let's just see what God says. You know, over the years, I've discovered that God defends His leaders. If His leaders stay devoted to God. Once there was a group of ladies who left our church on a Sunday night. And they went to the Burger King in Stone Mountain for shakes and apparently for roasted pastor. One of the ladies came to me and she confessed later that they were just letting me have it. They were criticizing me left and right. They were against all that I was up to. When suddenly, a man in the booth next to them got up and walked over and said, Hey, I know Sandy Adams. And what you're saying tonight is not true. You're just squealing lies and gossip. Someone might hear you and believe it. You better just knock it off. And then he walked back over and he sat down. I think he was an angel. (laughs) To this day, the man has never been identified, but the ladies got the point. So did I. If God calls you, he is faithful to defend and validate your position. And so this is why Moses just throws down the gauntlet. He says, well, let God decide. Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. And will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses... He will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, core in all your company, put fire in them. This was the equipment of the priest. And put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One, the set-apart one. And then Moses (laughs) adds sarcastically, and he echoes Korah's former words. He says, You take too much upon yourselves. You sons of Levi. (laughs) Korah had way overstepped his boundaries. 
God allowed these Levites to help the priests in the ministry of the tabernacle. But now they are no longer simply content with helping. They want to take over. And what happened to Korah and the Levites often occurs in the church. It's easy to start out wanting to help. Just thankful for the opportunity to serve. But over time you can forget your place. And you can assume more authority than you've been given. Korah took on a few duties. Now he wants to take over the ministry. Verse 8. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them? And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking the priesthood also? I mean, God had already given them an important role in the ministry. They carried the ark. They took care of the holy furniture. What more do you want? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? They're blaming Moses rather than themselves. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And they're defiant. This is a disrespectful bunch of rebels. It makes you wonder where in the where they were when God struck Miriam with leprosy when she questioned Moses and Aaron. You remember that? Where were these guys? And Moses got mad. Then Moses was very angry. And he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. He tells them what day tomorrow. But he does not tell them what time, but I'll bet you it was high noon. For a showdown is about to take place. Moses has drawn a line in the sand. Meet me at high noon. Each of you take his censer and put incense in it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers. Both you and Aaron, each with his censer. Remember, this is a formidable opposition. These are 250 men of renown. Big wigs. You know, head honcho type people. Verse 18. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle. Again, this was all the tools of a priest, the little censer bowl, the incense and all. This is how the priest went into the tabernacle. So everybody get equipped and meet at the door of the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. The Lord himself is about to separate the pretenders from the contenders. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. You get the impression God is also upset? 
Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? I mean, Moses and Aaron are asking God to have mercy on the Hebrews who didn't join in this rebellion. And so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the congregation saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. I hope you realize that one of the most dangerous places to be on earth is to be hanging out with people who are about to be judged by God. You young people need to pay attention to that. The most dangerous place on earth is to be hanging people who God's about to hang. This is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You see, when a believer gets involved into an entanglement, a legal relationship with an unbeliever, he or she becomes subject to collateral damage. Hey, if your business partner is a heathen, and God decides to bring down his company to humble him, guess who else is going to get affected? His partner, you. If your husband blasphemes God, and God chooses to teach him a lesson... Who else is going to get taken down a notch or two? His wife. If you're hanging out with friends who are doing drugs, you may not be doing them, but if you're hanging out with friends who are doing drugs and God sends the police, guess who also is going to spend the night in the slammer? It's going to be you. This is why he says, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. That's as much a word to us tonight as it was to them in that day. Verse 27. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. Then Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. In other words, Moses has simply been a conduit. God is the one who's worked through him. If these men die naturally like all men or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. In other words, these guys over here, they're not about to die of old age. That's going to be proven real soon. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and then they go alive into the pit... And again, this is why it is a bad decision to merge assets with an unbeliever. For what belongs to the person who's being judged often goes down into the pit with them. Notice that. And if that stuff is co-owned, that's your stuff too that's going to slide into the pit. Then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass. As he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. Here is a major mudslide. Korah was slinging mud. Now his name is mud. 
The earth opens him up and swallows him. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the congregation. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. A mudslide and a lightning strike finished the job. You know, it's interesting here that the Hebrew word translated pit is the word sheol, or the Old Testament home for the dead. When Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he went to Sheol. Or he went to, the other name was Hades. Before his crucifixion, between his crucifixion and his resurrection, you remember Jesus likewise descended into Hades. Evidently, Korah and his rebellious clan ended up sliding through a warp in space, a crack in space, so to speak. They died and went to Hades. Here's the lesson we learn from the rebellion of Korah. The attitude that works in business has no place in God's family. Ministry is not a ladder to climb. Position, authority are not gained by power plays and takeovers, but they are handed out by God. Success in ministry involves being content where God puts you. Verse 36. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy, and scatter the fire some distance away, the censers of these men who sinned against their own souls. And hey, notice that. When you sin, you sin against God, don't you? You sin against the other person. But notice here, against their own souls. See, you also sin against yourself when you sin. Sin is self-destructive. When you sin, the person you hurt most is you. Eleazar is to gather up all of these censers and let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar because they presented them before the Lord. Therefore, they are holy and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So Eleazar and the priest took the bronze censers which those who were burned up had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord that he might not become like Korah and his companions just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. How many of you want to be a priest? Good. You don't want to be a Levitical priest unless you're of the tribe of Levi, unless you're of the family of Aaron. And you think that Aaron's priestly authority would never be questioned again, wouldn't you? I mean, I, I mean the ground just opens up, swallows the rebels. Who's going to question Aaron again? You'd think it'd be over. But not so. On the next day, the very next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. God opens a chasm and swallows up these rebels, but the people blame it on Moses. Moses, you've been too harsh. You're a mean pastor, Moses. 
Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. This time God isn't going to beat around the bush. He's going to cut to the chase. He's going to silence their grumbling once and for all. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting (coughs) and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And so Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and he ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. Aaron was hoofing it. He was running for not his life but their lives. The lives of his fellow Israelites. This is an intense situation. Aaron is sprinting while people are dying. And so he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living so that the plague was stopped. We don't usually think of it this way. But we are in the same situation today as was Aaron in. For we have been commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world And to preach the gospel. But while we are strolling along. Or while we are standing our ground. Or while we are barely moving. People are dying. This is why we need to hoof it. We need to get on the stick. We need to speed up our efforts. We need to sprint to the altar. We need to get to God in prayer. And get to the people in need with the gospel. We need to be like Aaron. While he was running people were dying. But until he got to the altar, that's when the plague stopped. Verse 49 tallies up the death toll. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. It's difficult to fathom that after the incident with Miriam, with Korah, with these 14,700 victims of the plague... There would still be any need whatsoever to confirm Moses' authority. But God knows the rebellious hearts of his people. And so chapter 17 tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house. All their leaders according to their father's houses, twelve rods. Each man brought his shepherd's staff to the tabernacle. The shepherd's staff was a stick of wood. It was a rod. It was a former tree limb. They were all brought to the tabernacle, one from each tribe. Write each man's name on his rod, and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. They set aside, they identified one rod for each of Israel's twelve tribes. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony, the ark, where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel which they make against you. You might say God goes out on a limb. Oh, that's a nice sound effect there. 
you might say God goes out on a limb to decide this question once and for all. Bring your rods, the one that blossoms. This is the man of God. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For each leader, according to their father's houses, twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And then everybody went home to a restless night's sleep. Trust me. Verse 8. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. The very next day, that morning, Moses enters the tabernacle. And he discovers that only Aaron's rod has budded. He turns to Aaron. He hands him to the rod and he says, Hey Aaron, this bud's for you. <laughs> the Lord had confirmed the ordination of Moses' buddy Aaron with a bud. Then Moses brought all of the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel and they looked, and each man took his rod. And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. Thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Hebrews 9 verse 4 tells us that along with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded remained inside the Ark of the Covenant as a perpetual reminder that the priesthood belonged only to the family of Aaron. There's another interesting point here about Aaron's rod. Of course, a rod or a staff was a former branch, a former tree limb. It was once alive, but now it was dead. And what God did to Aaron's rod was to bring it back to life. The almonds budded. God resurrected Aaron's rod to prove that he was the chosen intercessor of the people. And this is a beautiful type of Jesus. For our high priest died and was brought back to life, his resurrection. And it is his resurrection that stands as proof that Jesus is God's chosen intercessor for mankind. Hey, the graveyard is full of dead rods. Buddha, Muhammad, every other false messiah is a dead rod, dead with no buds. But Jesus is alive. His work blossoms all over the world, even today. We're His buds. We're fruits of His labor. He's made us who were once enemies, now His friends. You're, you and I are Jesus' buds. Jesus is the only man whom God has authorized to intercede for mankind. He is the only means by which a person can be saved. He alone, his rod, has budded and made new life. Verse 12, So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? At last the message seems to be sinking in, doesn't it? Well, after Korah's challenge of Moses and Aaron's authority, it was necessary to reorder the relationship between the priesthood and the Levites. And this is what God does here in chapter 18. 
Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. God has confirmed Aaron's authority. But with authority comes responsibility. And now it's Aaron's time to be challenged by God. Also bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die, they and you also. Notice submitting to authority, understanding your place in the house of God can be a life or death matter. I've met people who got involved in the ministry only to burn out and to die off because they took on too much on their own shoulders. They, they didn't know their place. They didn't understand where God wanted them in the body of Christ. And so now he's saying, you know, you've had this conflict. Sons of Korah, all these Levites wanted to be priests. And now the priests have been, Aaron's family has been validated. But now you've got to get it back together. You've got to start working together again. You've got to know your place. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And verse 7 is so important. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Notice how the priest should view his ministry as a gift. Did you notice that? Whenever our service for God is viewed as a duty, or as a job, or as a right, our attitude is going to deteriorate. This is why ministry, any ministry, should always be viewed as a privilege, as a gift from God. Always remember, the opportunity to serve the Lord is a gift from the Lord, and we should treat it as such. Verse 8, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, here, I myself have also given you charge of my heave offerings. All the holy gifts of the children of Israel, I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. And this was God's way to feed the priests. They all got a cut of the sacrifices. And this was how they fed their families. Verse 12 says that the tithes of fruit and grain and wine also went to feed the priests. In the church, this is also how we feed the pastors and their families. From the tithes that you drop in the offering box each week, they go to help feed the pastors and their families. The priests are then told in verse 14, Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Now according to the following verses, the firstborn of the unclean animal could be purchased by the priest. But not the clean animals. They were to be sacrificed. And yet, even with the sacrifices, the priests got to eat the breast and the right thigh. That was the priestly portion of the sacrifice. The breast and the right thigh. It was like a two-piece dinner from KFC. A piece of white meat, 
and a piece of dark meat. Verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. In ancient times, salt was used as a preservative. And so a covenant of salt spoke of longevity and permanence. A covenant of salt was a promise forever. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. The tribe of Levi was the only tribe that did not receive a portion of land in Canaan. The Lord, not the land, was their inheritance. They lived in cities, but they didn't get tribal territories. In verse 21, God also provides food for the Levites. Behold, I have given the work, given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And verse 25 is an important verse for pastors. We got any pastors in here tonight? Where did James go? Well, gone through the whole thing. Finally get to something for pastors and he left. Verse 25 is an important verse for pastors. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance... Then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. And your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the wine press. Thus you shall also offer a heave offering to the Lord from all your tithes which you receive from the children of Israel. And you shall give the Lord's heave offering from it to Aaron the priest. Now notice the principle here. The Levites are paid from the tithes of the people. But then they are expected to turn around and tithe from the tithes that they've received. And the same should be true for the pastor. Hey, my salary comes from your offering. But then I turn around and tithe from that salary. So now your offering becomes my offering. Hey, I don't want you just to have the blessings of tithing. I'm going to get in on it too. And so you tithe your offerings. I get paid a salary, but then I turn around and tithe that back to the Lord as well. A pastor shouldn't just preach about tithing. He should also practice it. And so though James wasn't in here, some of you might tell him this after the Bible study tonight. There we have it. Numbers 15, 16, 17, and 18. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned a thing or two. And I hope you, your faith has been strengthened for this coming week. Because trust me, your faith is going to be needed this coming week. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have some bumps in the road. You're going to have some challenges. You're going to need a strong faith this week. So don't forget God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Help us to meditate in your word day and night. We love you, Lord. We want to be like that tree planted by the waters that meditates upon your word. Strengthen us. Make us strong. Help us to abide in Jesus. 
We love you, Lord. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.